didn't they used to, I mean, I mean, my recollection, I remember a blue string. No, because we haven't used it for at least 13, 1400 years. More. Um, the Radziner Tchelis is around probably 70, 80 years, but um, they're, they're controversial. The new ones. All right, so God was very upset over the golden calf. God was going to punish the people. He was going to destroy the people. Moses begged God for forgiveness, went up 40 days up on the mountain to beg God for forgiveness. At the end, God finally forgave the people. Moses went up a third time on the mountain to ask God, uh, where God, for God to give him the second set of tablets, and he taught him more laws of the Torah. And at that point, Moses asks God, show me your mercy. I would like to see how I can invoke your mercy in future. So, Torah describes it in great detail. God passes by Moses, and God calls out the 13 attributes of mercy, Hashem, Hashem, Kerachom vechanon erech apayim v'rachesed ve'emes notzerchesed la'alafim notzeavam v'fesha v'chata v'nak. It's about twenty words that God says, and God says, whenever you need it, say these words. Moses later in this week's reading, when God wants to destroy the people after the sin of the spies, Moses invokes six of those thirteen, so seven of those thirteen attributes. Um, after they had sinned. So he actually invokes those attributes, invokes those words, and repeats the words that God had, some of the words that God had originally told him. Why some and not others is a discussion for itself. Later, in a much later prophet, Micha, who was one of our later prophets, um, one of the short, we have 12 small prophets, so one of the 12 small prophets is Micha. Micha, at the very end of his book, um, again, goes over the 13 attributes of mercy, though his are much more detailed than the original that God taught Moses. Now the Talmud tells us that anyone who invokes the 13 attributes of mercy will be answered. We have a, um, a presumption that the 13 attributes of mercy are not returned empty-handed. So, you invoke the 13 attributes of mercy, you get God's mercy. And therefore, we invoke those 13 attributes regularly in our prayers. Every day after our Shmona Esrei, which is our central prayer of the daily prayers, we recite a prayer called Tachanun. Tachanun means supplication. And as part of this Tachanun prayer, we invoke the 13 attributes of mercy every single day. Similarly, when we recite the slichot, slichot are collections of poems um, asking God for forgiveness that we recite every time we have a special fast day. We're going to have a few coming up in a couple weeks. Um, we're going to skip breakfast twice um, in July because of that, and because um, they're going to be on Sundays this year. Uh, so whenever we have fast days, we recite slichot, and also in the days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we recite slichot. Whenever we recite the slichot, also... We invoke the 13 attributes of mercy. Many of the poems are written around or built around about the 13 attributes of mercy. On Yom Kippur, our day of forgiveness, many times throughout the prayers, we invoke the 13 attributes of mercy. 
culminating in the Ne'ilah prayer, where we invoke the 13 attributes of mercy time and again, again and again through the Ne'ilah prayer. So, before I explain what those attributes actually are, let's just talk a little bit about the deeper meaning behind them and what they mean. So, asking God to have mercy on us is a very central theme in Judaism. Moses did it, as we've seen in this week's reading and other times. And many other prophets and leaders have invoked God's mercy. We do it all the time in our prayers. And it's a central theme in Judaism that we need God's mercy. To get God's mercy, we have to invoke God's mercy. We use the 13 attributes of mercy. What does it mean to invoke God's mercy? So the Midrash tells us, when God taught Moses the 13 attributes of mercy, God wrapped himself in a talit. A talit means a shawl. He wrapped himself in a shawl. It happens to be shawls have four corners. And so therefore, since it has four corners, as we mentioned before in this week's Torah reading, four-cornered garments need tzitzit. But God wrapped himself in a shawl when he invoked the 13 attributes of mercy. So a talit is therefore connected to God's mercy. And that is why we wear a talit when we pray every morning. We also wear a talit, Jewish men at least wear a talit, when we pray on Yom Kippur. By all the prayers on Yom Kippur, we wear a talit. Now, of course, God cannot possibly wrap himself in a talis. Why? Because God has no form, right? Clearly, God cannot really wrap himself in a talus. It must then be a metaphor. A talus is then a metaphor for God's mercy. And so it doesn't mean God really wrapped himself in a talus, but the talus serves as the metaphor. And that is why we wrap ourselves in a shawl when we pray to invoke God's mercy because the shawl represents God's mercy. Why? Kabbalah explains that the talid represents being covered by an outer layer or something beyond yourself. And it represents rising to what we call in Kabbalah, makif, a surrounding level, or rising above beyond oneself. And that's the representation of the talid, having something beyond you, having something greater than yourself around you. And that's why we wear the talit. Mercy represents invoking something beyond yourself. What do we mean by that? So Kabbalah explains that there are three midot, or three attributes, three ways that we respond to those around us. We respond with, to people with kindness, with judgment, and with mercy. Three ways that we respond to other people. With kindness, with judgment, and with mercy. What's kindness? Kindness is when you give people in need. You see someone in need, you give. Think of the activist who is trying to help everyone. 
activists for people perhaps who are incarcerated. They may be criminals, but we love helping people. We're going to try to help everyone and anyone that we can. What they've actually done doesn't matter. We want to try to help people whomever we can. That's kindness. You don't look at the individual. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. We just help people. It is the activism where you are actively trying to help everyone that you can. That's one attitude we have towards people. We often have kindness to our own family. We will help our family even though they have done some really horrible stuff. And even though they're not the best people, we help them anyway. They're our children, they're our siblings, they're our parents. We're gonna, we love them anyway. We're going to help them no matter what. We don't really care what they've done. We don't really care what they need. We don't really care. Maybe what we're doing might really be harmful to them. Um, but we just give. And that's a very common human, a part of human nature, to just give, to just help others. Um, to just be there for others without worrying too much about the details of exactly what needs to be done. That's what we call in Hebrew chesed or kindness. The second way, the second human way we respond to other people is what we call gevura or judgment. Now in judgment is where is where we're very calculated. And we try to analyze and we say, how can I best help this individual? What exactly do they need? If I give them money, will they use it to go and buy drugs? Perhaps it's not even worth the risk. I'm not going to give them anything. Despite the fact that they're standing there begging. I'm not going to give them. Did they hurt someone? Are they, have, do they deserve to perhaps pay for some negative things they did? Maybe. Then I am not going to help them. So judgment means that you are there to help others and you're, try, you're trying to be helpful. But you are calculated. You give everyone exactly what they need. You follow the rules. If you make sure that whatever you're going to do should be absolutely helpful and is only for those whom are deserving, you committed a crime, you deserve to be behind bars. Why should I help you? You should be locked up. It's painful, it's uncomfortable, you don't like it, it's bad for your family. Too bad. Shouldn't have done it, shouldn't have, shouldn't have committed the crime. You're gonna misuse I'm afraid you're gonna misuse the money I give you. Not gonna give you anything. You're going to starve too bad. Got to learn how to use your money properly. So judgment means that you calculate and figure out exactly what someone needs. Not give them and exactly what someone deserves and give them exactly that. No more and no less. And kindness is where you just give. Don't care about the details. Judgment is... Judgment is where you give people exactly what de they deserve, exactly what they're supposed to get. Which one is better, kindness or judgment? <coughs> kindness? There has to be a balance? Depends on the person and the situation? If it's someone who you like, kindness. If you don't like him, judgment. Bad one. So 
Okay, so then we get to the third one. The third one is called mercy. 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 Sorry? No. Mercy. (laughs) Mercy means that we fully understand the situation. We fully appreciate the individual's needs as we would with kindness. We fully understand exactly what the person needs, exactly what the person deserves. We fully understand whether they're going to misuse it. We have a full understanding. You know what? Like in judgment, they committed a crime. They, should, they really deserve to be put behind bars, right? They really deserve to be punished for their crime. As painful and as difficult as it might be. They need to learn their lesson. They're going to misuse what you're going to give them. Don't give it to them. That is, so mercy recognizes the judgment. Recognizes that. Mercy says, even though they are undeserving, recognizing their lack of deserving, I am still going to help them out anyway. I'm still going to help them out anyway. So a classic example... A classic example of the three approaches. The Talmud tells us a story. Um, this is probably a story that can happen, is, is common. The Talmud tells a story about the great sage Rava who um, hired um, workers to work for him. And those workers then broke the things that they were working with. So what did he do? He sued them. They broke his stuff. He sued them. They are day laborers, though. They have no money to pay. He sued them. They come before the judge. The judge now has three approaches that he could, that he could give. Either the judge can give an approach of judgment. You broke someone's thing. You didn't get the job done. You don't deserve to get paid because you didn't get the job done. You also deserve to pay up. You cannot afford to pay. Go borrow the money. Go find the money. Go work for it. Pay them up. That would be judgment. Got to be more careful next time. Got to be more careful with what you're doing. You broke something. You're guilty. You got to pay. That would be judgment. Straightforward. Or you could have the kindness approach. Kindness approach is you say, look, you're rich. You tell the employer you're a rich individual. You... Have, you could afford to handle it. These poor workers have no money. They, they, can't, they can't pay up. Too bad. You have to, not only can you not, you have to help them out, pay them so they should have money to take home to their workers, to their family today. That's another approach. Then there's a third approach. The third approach is what the Talmud said the judge actually did in this situation. He said, well, the law is... The law is very clear. The law is you broke something, the workers are liable to pay for what they broke. They're liable to pay. But they clearly don't have money to pay. And not only that, they have no food to buy food for their families for tonight because they weren't paid for their day's labor. So you, the employer as a wealthy individual, should help out these people by absolving what they owe you, and not only that, by giving them charity um, 
to help them be able to pay their family tonight. So what mercy essentially does is it recognizes the facts. It recognizes the reality. And yet it says, despite the facts, despite the reality, despite fairness, we're going to in this instance not be fair. So kindness is where you say you don't care about fairness. You just want to help, help, help whoever you can. Judgment is where you're very fair. And mercy is where you are fair, but then help in spite of the fairness. So these are three different attitudes. Um, I don't like getting into politics, so I will let you, but I think it can very, very well be um, applied to a lot of, Susan could appreciate it, um, applied to a lot of our political debates today. Some people like to take an approach of, of um, kindness. Some people like to take an approach of judgment. And sometimes we have to take an approach of mercy. Both. Oh. They're attitudes of human people. Yeah. They're attributes of God. So, um, but attributes to me means good things. Well, they could all be good in their own way. Each one has a place. But, but, but to me, the way judgment is described isn't necessarily Judgment is straightforward truth. Judgment is a very good thing. Judgment is you give everyone exactly what they deserve. That's an excellent thing. That's an attribute. You need judgment. You need fairness. You need fairness. You need to recognize um, some people, are, sometimes people are deserving, sometimes they're not. You've got to recognize sometimes people are better off not getting than getting. You have to sometimes have judgment. That's, that's a good thing. But mercy is above the two. So essentially, mercy is then the hardest, right? It's appreciating the, the, it's appreciating the situation, appreciating the details, and yet giving them anyway. It's recognizing that your child is really deserves to be punished and really deserves not to be helped out. And you decide, even so, I'm still going to help them. So when we are really, really in need, when we're in a really bad situation, when we're on the receiving end, you don't want kindness. You don't want someone who doesn't appreciate your needs, who's just giving, because they don't really recognize what you want. You also don't want judgment, because judgment won't give you what you really want if you're undeserving. Um, What we need is mercy, someone who appreciates our situation, yet helps us anyway. Yes, yes. But when you're on the receiving end, the one that you want most often is mercy. So when we invoke God's mercy, we say, we may have messed up, we may have done things wrong, we might be undeserving, we probably will mess up again. Um, But even so, God, give us what we need because we really, really want it and just do us a favor this time. So, the mercy isn't what the person is asking for, that something. too. That could be as well. I mean, that's in general. Sometimes you don't know what's good for you. But when we talk about mercy, we're talking about when someone, when you give someone what they want. Um, there are many great leaders, including Moses himself, struggled to understand God's mercy and struggled to understand the concept of mercy. In fact, 
we are told that the first time Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God taught him the 13 attributes of mercy before the sin of the golden calf, says the Midrash. When Moses heard about the mercy, he said, God, is this for people that are deserving or for people that are undeserving? And God said, oh, this is for people that are undeserving. But it says, if they're undeserving, why would you want to help them? And God says, just wait, you'll see, you're going to need it very soon. And indeed, when the people worshipped the golden calf, and God said, these people, I just gave them the Torah, I just gave them the Ten Commandments, they went in and they worshipped the golden calf, I'm done with them, I'm destroying them, they don't deserve anything. And Moses says, yeah, but God, the 13 attributes of mercy... So um, later Moses does need to invoke that mercy, but it's something that's hard to understand. They're not deserving. Why would you give it to them? Um, It's something that later prophets were told. Elijah later struggled with God's mercy to the point that even when God tried explaining it to him, Elijah still struggled with it. And God said, I give up, Elijah. And he um, and he took it. And that's when Elijah uh, was forced to end his life um, because he wasn't God. He wasn't able to be merciful. He didn't appreciate mercy. And often we humans struggle with it as well. We say they're undeserving. They broke the law. They're criminals. They. Um, why would you want to help them? Or sometimes we have just the kindness: help, 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 without even paying attention to what the people actually need or what the people actually deserve. And sometimes it's the hardest thing to do is to invoke mercy. So to be merciful, we need to step beyond our normal selves. And this concept of stepping beyond our normal selves is represented in the talit that surrounds us a step beyond ourselves, And that is why the talit invokes God's mercy. So what then are, understanding now the power of mercy... What then are the 13 attributes of mercy? So the words are clear in the Torah. There's about, I think it's about 17 or 18 words in the Torah, or maybe 20 words in the Torah. But how exactly do you split them or structure them? We know there's 13 in total. How do you break up the phrases? There's some debate over this. Um, There's at least four... um, common ways to count the 13 attributes of mercy. I'm going to give you one of them, which is the way that Arizal, the um, great Kabbalist Arizal, counts the 13 attributes of mercy. The first one is the name of God, Kale, which we don't pronounce, we mispronounce because it's the name of God. It's mispronounced as Kale, Aleph Laman. And it means... Mighty God. It refers to God's might. And it refers to God's ability to give everybody what they need. Nothing is impossible for Him. No matter what situation you are in, and no matter what you have done, God can always come through. So nothing is beyond His ability. That is the power of Kale. The second attribute, the second power of mercy that God has that we invoke is the power of rachum. Rachum literally means mercy. And it means that God appreciates our pain. When we are struggling, when we are suffering, God is there with us in our troubles, feels our pain. And just as when we are undeserving ourselves, 
nevertheless, we try to help ourselves because we feel pain. We want to get out of the pain, even though we know it's good pain. We still want to get out of the pain, even if we recognize it's good pain. God, too, feels our pain. Even though he recognizes it might be good pain, he tries to get us out of the pain. Now you see your child suffering, even though the child may be suffering for good reason. It still hurts. You try to help him. That is Rachel. The third attribute is Chanun. Chanun means gracious. Chinon or grace in Torah is a very common theme in Torah. And Chinon means that you give someone something for free or gifting. It means sometimes when you give someone something, you give it expecting something in return. Chinon means when you give something for free. God helps us for free at no cost. And that's the ultimate form of mercy. Although you're not expecting anything in return. They did nothing to earn what you are giving them. You give them anyway, even though they did not earn it. The fourth one, according to the Ari, is Erech. Erech or Erech is that God is slow to anger. If you do just one thing wrong, God overlooks it. Eh, no big deal. You messed up one time, ignore it. Something that we struggle with a lot today in our modern society. Someone make, has one misstep. It's the end of everything. The end of their career, the end of their life. They did one thing wrong. They've been good till now. Ignore that one thing. Don't worry about it. Right? Pretend, we'll pretend that one didn't happen. Right? It's no big deal. Right? That's Erech. The fifth one is Apayim. Apayim is when we do things wrong repeatedly, not the one who does one thing wrong and we say, eh, it doesn't matter, it's just one time, what's one time? Apayim is someone who repeatedly does things wrong, has messed up time and again. And even though there's a much more powerful form of mercy, God says, even so, I'm going to help you out anyway. Even though you've messed up so many times that I'm pretty sure you're going to mess up again, I'm going to anyway help you out. The next one is Rav Chesed. Rav Chesed means much kindness. What do we mean by much kindness? That you could be kind and help someone out and give them kind of just enough to help them get out of their troubles or just enough to help them survive. God says, no, I'll give you lots and lots, everything you want. So that's Rav Chesed. The next one, number eight, number seven, sorry, is MS. MS or truth. Truth or trust is our ability to trust in God. We could count on Him. We can rely on Him. In any given situation, wherever we are, He will be there no matter what happened, no matter our previous relationship with Him. He will, we can always call him and he'll be back there to help us. Number eight is Notzer Chesed. When we do kindness, when we do good things, God remembers them and he pays us back. So later when we mess up, he says, you know what? You did a lot of good, so I'll ignore that one. So he remembers the good that we did. And did you have a question on that one? Well, yeah, but we're supposed to give kindness without expecting anything back. We had that as well, where he is gracious. We did not do anything. He's kind. But on top of that, when we do good, he invokes that goodness to help overlook any negative that we do. 
Another attribute is la'alafim, which is that he rewards us for future generations. If you are good, then your grandchildren get treated well because of it. Your children get treated well because of it. We always invoke our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They lived 3,000 years ago, more. We still invoke them. We say, God, we're we're their children, we're their grandchildren. Help us out, right? The person should never be punished for their parents' misdeeds. But we could always invoke our parents' good deeds and say, my dad was a good person, help me out, right? And, and we, respond that, we respond to that. God responds to that too. Um, rewards us for our ancestors' good actions and helps us out. Then, number 10 is no say avo, which it means that God overlooks when we do something wrong. We've done bad, we, did, we knowingly did bad, and uh, we do that sometimes, and some bad things that we do are inexcusable, and even inexcusable things, God ignores. That's mercy. Did something wrong, did something inexcusable, overlook it. Don't worry about it. The next one is even more powerful. No say pesha. Pesha means malicious. You do something, not just you did something bad, inexcusable. You did something maliciously bad where you were trying to be bad. You were trying to do bad. And even over there, God says, eh, don't worry about it. The next one really comes before those two is no sechata, where God overlooks accidental acts. You do something wrong accidentally, God brushes it off. And the 13th one is nake, and this is the only one that is not a complete attribute, but a part attribute. And that is God cleans us up from the bad that we've done. However, God does not clean us entirely. So there's never full cleanliness for bad that we've done. He cleans us, so most of the um, negativity is gone, but never entirely. So it's not a full attribute. So those then are the 13 attributes according to the Ari, the 13 um, different ways that God responds to us with mercy, recognizing our situation, recognizing whether we are deserving or not, recognizing whether, whether it would be fair or right to respond to us, and even when it is not, responding positively to us anyway. So that is the power of the 13 attributes of mercy. Now, why 13? Why the number 13? So 12 is, represents the zodiac. 12 represents the structure, of, um, the structure of our world, which is why we have 12 months. That's how we normally function. Kabbalah also tells us another thing. It's a com- another common occurrence in our world in 12 is yud bet there are 13 angles on a cube. Sorry, 12 angles on a cube. Every cube has 12 angles. Right? 3 times 4. Every cube has 12 angles. So 13 is when we go a step up. 13 is when we go a step above that normal functioning. We go a step above either the straight kindness 
or the fairness and judgment. We go a step above that, step beyond, and we're merciful anyway. You step out of the norm. Excuse me, Rabbi. Yes. You said the zodiac, you mean like the zodiac sign? Mm-hmm. That's something that Jews believe in? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, okay. Good. We should do a class on that. Jewish zodiac. Yeah. yeah. Astrology. So, in addition, the Hebrew word echad means one, referring to the oneness of God. Hashem echad, God is one. The Hebrew word echad has a number value of 13. Every letter in Hebrew has a number value. Aleph is one, Chet is eight, Dalit is four, together make 13. The 13 represents the oneness of God. That's why there are 12 tribes of Israel. With God, we have 13. So the 13th is God. 13 is the lucky number. 13 is the lucky number, yeah. That's why there are, maybe that's why 13 became a lucky number. That's why. Everyone else says it's unlucky, they're not Jewish. That's why we also have 13 code rules, rules to expound or to decipher the Torah. The Torah is written in code, and it needs to be deciphered, and there's 13 rules to decipher it. We also have 13 principles of Jewish faith. In Kabbalah, we also speak as we also speak of the 13 petaled rose. We speak of the Shoshanim, the roses with 13 petals. And that's because the Shoshana, the rose, represents God's mercy. Roses are very important in Kabbalah, represent God's mercy. And that is why the month of Elul is the month before the high holidays, the last month of the year before the high holidays, called the month of Elul. It's the month when we blow the shofar every day, and it's a month when we invoke God's mercy. And the Hebrew name Elul is alluded to in the verse in Song of Songs, Ani ledodi I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me, the Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, in other words, those four words make an, our acronym for the word Elul, the first letter of each word makes up the word Elul, the Aleph of Ani, the Lamed of Ledodi, the Vav of Vedodi, and the Lamed of Li, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed makes up the word Elul, I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me, and the last two words of that verse are Haro'eb b'shoshanim, he who postures among the roses. And the roses, the rose bushes, therefore represent God's mercy. And whenever in scripture we speak of rose bushes, we're referring to God's mercy. So again, it's representative, it's a flower that represents God's mercy. So we Jews often find ourselves in times of distress, times of need, things that we need, often we are undeserving. In fact, our standard line of tachanun, which means supplication to God, is we say, um, even though we are undeserving, we take that as a given, we are undeserving, we have done things wrong, our um, ancestors were undeserving, nevertheless, God, we hope you will, we ask you to help us anyway. So even though chances are whatever you give us, we're going to misuse. And even though we've messed up in the past and ruined stuff you've given us previously, um, nevertheless, we want you to give us everything that we need. And with that, we invoke God's attributes of mercy. The Talmud says whenever we invoke God's attributes of mercy, we can be guaranteed that we will not return empty-handed. Now, 
Rabbi Avraham ben Yaakov was a Spanish Jew who wrote a famous book on Kabbalah called Tzror Hamor. And he lived in the late 15th century and lived through the expulsion of Jews from Spain. In his book Tzror Hamor, he describes in great detail how the Jews in 1492... There were hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Spain. It's an estimated number. It's about a half a million Jews at the time um, were expelled from Spain or forced to convert to Christianity. They all had to leave Spain. They were not able to take their money with them. So they left Spain penniless. They really had nowhere to go. Um, Those who were able to afford it were able to make it to Holland, which had just become independent of Spain, um, and welcome Jews. Um, The wealthy ones ended up there. Um, Most other Jews really had nowhere to go. Some took rickety boats across the Mediterranean to try to reach Morocco, which is just across the Mediterranean. Many of them were caught by pirates. Many of their boats broke and they drowned. Many of them didn't survive. The largest bulk of these Jews who were expelled from Spain went to nearby Portugal. And Jews in Portugal gave a huge amount of money to the king of Portugal to allow the Jews to live, be in Portugal for just 10 months temporarily until they can figure out where they will go. So um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands went over the border to Portugal. Portugal now had this huge Jewish refugee problem. Uh, they managed to slowly bribe, bribe their way, uh, keep bribing the king of Portugal to allow them to stay a little longer and a little longer. It lasted for four years till 1496. In 1496, the, Portu- the um, Portuguese king Manuel um, was offered to marry the daughter of King Fernandad of Spain, but only on can create what was going to be called the United Iberian monarchy and unite Spain and Portugal, but only on one condition, he had to expel all the Jews from Portugal. However, the Portuguese, the Portuguese king was not going to make the same mistake that the Spanish king made. The Spanish king essentially destroyed Spain because many the wealthy Jews did manage to get, smuggle their money out and took a lot of money out. And all the expertise, the doctors and the financiers, the bankers and the lawyers and all the smart people were all gone. They're um, mathematicians, astronomers that they needed for um, navigation. Spain was then a big um, naval power. Were all gone. They lost all their brains and all their money. Big mistake. So the king of Portugal was not going to make the same mistake. So he had a better idea. He said that all Jews in Portugal have to leave Portugal. Or, if they want to stay, they have to convert to Christianity. However, he closed the ports of Lisbon. He couldn't leave. There were no ships going. He closed the ports. Nobody could get out. Not only that, he decided he was going to forcibly... He decided he was going to forcibly convert Jews. Now, it's hard to forcibly convert adults without them fighting. But what he did is, he had... Um, Christian monks go around and kidnap Jewish children. Tens of thousands of Jewish children. And then they brought them to a big arena in Lisbon and they baptized thousands of Jewish children with their parents watching. Um, They forcibly baptized them. And so um, 
Rabbi, Yaakov, Rabbi Avram ben Yaakov, the author of this book, Tzvar Hamar, witnessed all of this and describes it all in great detail. His own children were kidnapped and baptized in front of his eyes. So he points out in his book that many Jews tried invoking the 13 attributes of mercy. It didn't help. It didn't work. So how can the 13 attributes of mercy always invoke God's mercy? It doesn't always work. Sometimes we don't seem to be able to invoke God's mercy. So, so Rabbi Avram, so some answer, some, some Rishonim answered that indeed, as Stephen says, if God has chosen to do bad for reasons known to him, which we discussed in our class about why God allows bad things to happen, but if God has chosen to do bad, calling for God's mercy will not help. It is only in a situation where God is open to being merciful um, only then will God's mercy help. So in a situation where God's mercy can help, invoking God's mercy will help. But it won't help in every situation. The Tzror Hamar says that it's not about reciting words. Reciting words is not what invokes God's mercy. The words are just a reminder that we have to be merciful. When we act in a merciful way, that in turn invokes God's mercy. So when we act to others, not in a way of kindness, where we just give and um, try to help everyone without paying attention to what they actually need. Not in a way of fairness or judgment where we try to be fair and follow the rules, but in a way of mercy where we recognize the needs of every individual, yet we try to help them, go out of our way to help them even when they're undeserving, even when they shouldn't really be getting it. We help them anyway. God does the same to us. When we are merciful, God is then merciful to us as well. That's the answer of the Tzrar Hamar. Yes, Stephen? That's super slow, because then you're going to reverse engineer and say, well, these, first, these people got it in the next, so it meant that they were not acting in kind. Which, you know, okay, perhaps we need, very good point, perhaps we need both answers together. For, um, another answer given in Chassidus, it is taught that when we invoke God's mercy, it's not only about us being merciful, but about us stepping outside of ourselves and connecting to God. Mercy is associated with family. People are merciful to their family. They appreciate their family's problems. They appreciate, you appreciate your child's problems, why your child is, is undeserving, should be kicked out of the house perhaps, or your child... Um, she should not, you should not give them any more allowance or whatever else it is. You should not help them. You should not help them in any way. You appreciate your child's problems, and yet you help them anyway because they're your child. How can you not help them? So mercy comes from a deep, deep connection with someone. In the same way, for us to invoke God's mercy, we need to invoke our deep connection with God. How do we invoke our deep connection to God? The answer is misirat nefesh, sacrificing for God. As long as we only do the right thing when it's convenient for us, then we really are putting ourselves before God. That's not much of a connection. But when we do the right thing, we do what God wants, when it's very, very difficult when it's a struggle, when we need to sacrifice, when we sacrifice for God, Hebrew term is sirat nefesh, we do the right thing 
Even when it's very costly and very difficult, we invoke that deep connection that we have and that in turn invokes God's mercy. When we sacrifice for God, that's how we invoke God's mercy. Regardless, mercy is a very, very powerful thing. And it's important for us to be able to practice mercy on our own, to both recognize the details and understand the details of the situation, and yet be merciful at the same time. To not ignore the details, that's kindness. Not just focus on the unfairness, but appreciate the, the judgment, and yet then step, go a step beyond and be merciful as well. So that is the power of mercy. So, um, 